You're listening to episode 67 of the Journey to Launch podcast, listener Q&A. I'm tackling your questions about crazy daycare expenses, paying off your student loan versus investing, 401ks, Roth IRAs, and so much more. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. I am bringing you a Q&A episode this week. I'm excited to answer your questions. I really would like to try and do these question and answer episodes more often. I know this is a once a week show. And so I want to bring you the great interviews, the solo episodes and Q&A episodes and everything else. So I just have to figure out a schedule that works where I feel like I am actually giving you the content you want. Plus, I did add that new Journeyer Profile series. So I have some Journeyer Profile interviews in the bag ready to be released. And so we'll see. I'm just trying to figure out a good schedule. But today we are going to be answering some questions from you. You've either emailed me, DM'd me, or left voice messages. And I'm going to select four or five questions to go through, answer them, And then I actually want to talk to you about something that's actually just came up recently for me. And maybe it's an issue or something you've been thinking about yourself. And so I want to kind of go through that, how we compare ourselves or think we should be further ahead than where we currently are with our life, our finances, our accomplishments, and why we need to stop that and not do that. And I want to share with you personally how that actually came up for me really recently. Before we get started, if you are enjoying this podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen to this in the Apple Podcast app, that's that purple app on your phone, please rate, review, and subscribe. I have a goal of getting to at least 500 ratings and reviews in that app by the end of the year. And we are almost there as of the day of this recording. We are up to 444 ratings and reviews. So not too bad. I'd like to get to 500. So if you like this, keep doing that. And let me tell you something, it helps because when someone kind of Googles or looks on the Apple podcast app for a journey to launch or good financial podcast, and it pops up and it shows that, wow, there are 444 or 500 or 800 reviews for this podcast. It shows that you guys are engaged and listening and that it's providing value. And I actually had someone say to me, The reason why I even clicked on your podcast in the player is because I saw that it had so many good reviews. I know sometimes people say, oh, what's the point? Who cares or what does it matter? But it matters to me. So if you're enjoying the content, just continue to share it with your friends. You know, I always say, tell a friend to tell a friend, (laughs) but also rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening, especially if you're listening to this in Apple podcast. You can find the episode show notes for what I'm going to talk about any tips or maybe some articles that I mentioned on the episode show notes at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 67. And also don't forget, you can hit me up on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at journey to launch. So the questions I'm going to be answering are one, I got a question about childcare expenses, how crazy childcare expenses can be on this journey to financial independence. I got a question about contributing to a traditional Roth 
in addition to if you have a 401k or pre-tax retirement plan through your job. Got a question about student loans and if you should pay off your student loans or invest and do other things for yourself. Also got a question about how do you determine what you do next if you want to buy something, treat yourself. What's that payoff? What do you think? What are the things you should consider? And a couple more. So we'll see how much we can get into in this episode. And let's get started. Okay, the first question comes from someone who wants to be kept anonymous. So let's call her Rihanna because I don't know. I like Rihanna. She says, I'm enjoying the pod. I'm learning so much. A friend turned me on to you and I was able to hear about money and personal finance because it always felt like a taboo topic, especially for those of us growing up struggling. I have about $100,000 in student loans because my family couldn't help in the way of finances. I really wanted to earn my PhD and I reached my goal and I'm currently teaching at a university and love my job. I'm enrolled in the public service loan forgiveness program and it set me up to make payments for 10 years while working And after those payments, 120 payments, I can get the remainder of the loan forgiven since I'm a public servant. Now, I would have never been able to afford this degree without these loans, but I'm worried about this huge debt. My question is, can I still invest in retirement stocks, IRAs, 457 and all that while I'm still in a lot of debt? Is it counterintuitive or wrong? I feel like My goal should be to pay off all my debts and then to save because I owe the federal government so much money. What do you think? I just feel like I'm carrying this huge burden, a dirty secret of school debt with me. And even though I'm approved and currently enrolled in the public service loan forgiveness program, I just don't feel really that great about it. So do you have any advice? Thank you so much. Okay, Rihanna, yeah, first of all, you really, really should let go of that feeling of shame about this dirty secret that it feels like you're carrying about the student loan debt, because really, a lot of people are carrying around a lot of student loan debt, especially for you, you had an advanced degree, it doesn't look like you got a lot of scholarships. So that's actually not that uncommon. So please, please Give yourself some grace there and understand and know that this is actually something that a lot of people are facing, this burden of student loans, especially student loans the size of a mortgage. So don't feel bad about it. First of all, let go of that shame. It's not going to serve you to feel that way. It's only going to create the negative feelings that you have, which then temper the way you then approach your finances. So first step is to forgive yourself for not knowing maybe some things you didn't know back then and to understand that a lot of people are actually in your situation. So thanks for listening to the podcast because this is a great way to understand that you're not alone. Now on to your actual question. No, you should not stop and wait to invest in retirement even though you have student loan debt. I know there are some finance experts that would say that you should pay off all debt first and then invest in retirement. But listen, time is of the essence, especially if you are older. I mean, even if you're in your 20s and you just graduated, the longer your time has in the market to grow, so that's compounding interest, the more it can grow. Some of you guys, so you, Rihanna, listening, your debt is a lot. The student loan debt is a lot. It's the size of a mortgage for some people. So if you were to wait 10 years until this was forgiven or 10 years the time it took you to maybe pay it off on your own, you're going to be losing so much money in the market where it could have been then put in and growing for you. 
Now, that doesn't mean you should ignore your debt and only invest. I do believe you should come up with a strategy in which it makes sense for you to pay off debt aggressively for the most part, but to still try to invest for your retirement at the minimum. And so there are different ways to invest. There's your retirement investing, and then there's gonna be outside of retirement investing. If you're just starting to invest right now, you should go after retirement investing. So those are the tax advantage retirement investment accounts that you have available to you. So that's gonna be through your job or through a Roth IRA. Now I wanna touch upon the public service loan forgiveness program because recently actually there was a article that came out that said that a lot of the people that enrolled in that program did not get approved and their loans forgiven because this program came out a while ago. Now is the first time that people can actually apply. It's been 10 years since the program first rolled out. So this year is the first year people can apply to see if their loans will be forgiven. And I think the number was 99% of people were denied. And so out of the 29,000 applications, people who filed and went into this public service loan forgiveness program were denied. Only 96 borrowers out of the 29,000 were actually forgiven um, their loans. Now, I'm not saying that to scare you and to say that this won't be around and it's not something you should do. I actually think this program is great, especially if you qualify for it, because imagine you have $100,000 in debt. If most of that or a good amount of that can be paid off for you at the end of your service, then I think you should do that because it's almost like giving up free money. If you think you can make way much more money within 10 years, so shorter than 10 years to pay that off and to still live your life, then go for it. But I think if you're going to stay in your job, you're going to stay in a qualified job that allows you to be able to get this program, you should do it. So I'm bringing this point up about a lot of people being denied for this is because I don't want you to go through the same thing. I don't want anyone listening who is in this PSLF. So that stands for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program to go all those years thinking that you are qualified and then get to the end of it and realize that you weren't. And so a lot of the reasons why people were denied was because there were so many people not meeting the program requirements and they were missing incomplete information on the form. So you wanna make sure you're not gonna be one of those people. This is the first time now that people can start getting forgiven for this. There was a learning curve for people to find out exactly what they needed to do and the qualified payments. And there's a lot of actually misconceptions out there. So my first thing is that you really need to stay on top of your program You need to really stay on top of your payments and the submission for work. And I want to go through actually some of the things that why people weren't forgiven and make sure you're not going to do the same thing. So some of the common mistakes for why people were not forgiven was they didn't have eligible loans. So the only loans that can be forgiven under this program are federal direct loans. Loans such as federal Perkins loans are not eligible. Now you can consolidate your loans. I don't want this to turn into a whole student loan topic, but I'm just giving you some high level things of why people were not qualified for it or for the program. So you need to make sure you have an eligible loan. You also need to make sure you have an eligible payment plan. So only people in an income-based repayment plan qualify for this. So just make sure that you are actually in an income-based repayment plan. Also, you wanna make sure you're working for a employer that qualifies. So it seems like you are. So continue to do that for the next 10 years as one of your things to qualify. Another thing is making sure that you are paying on time and making the correct payments. So all of that to say is don't just be in the program and go on autopilot. You need to be checking every year to make sure you are on top of it and it will count because you don't want to get to the end of the 10 years and realize that it doesn't. 
Overall, yes, please continue or start to invest in your retirement accounts, whether that's your 403B plan or a Roth IRA. If you can do both, do that. Now, you don't have to necessarily go crazy and max everything out if you can't. If you can, amazing, try that. But if you're feeling shame, you need to own it. And if you're feeling bad, let's own it. And it's kind of saying, oh, no, 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 I don't feel that way. I'm going to ignore those feelings. Helps to keep those feelings in cycle. Yes, you're acknowledging it. Great. But please, please, please understand that there are so many other people in your situation. Do not feel ashamed about it. And do not wait to invest for your future. Because if you do, you'll lose a lot, a lot of time and money by not starting sooner. Okay, next question is from Angie. She says, I just discovered your podcast a month ago. I'm loving it. I make decent money, but I live in an expensive city. So I know that even as an adult, I have no savings. Most of my money has gone to living expenses. And I've also spent on things like eating out, lifestyle, and hobbies. And I didn't really like to budget. I did have a pet care crisis this summer. And it took up all my extra money. And it was a wake-up call. So I've shifted my perspective to focus more on savings. So far, I have been spending on nothing that is not a necessity. Starting the new year, I'm going to set a more reasonable budget. And the question I have is that for someone who is better at this than me, how do you decide what you should buy? Like what that one special item is that you want? For me, I want to buy a fancy set of knitting needles that will cost about $250 with international shipping. (laughs) But it could be any item. Some girls may like handbags or shoes. So how would you help someone decide if they should purchase a item that they don't need if they're trying to reach their goals? Thanks, Jamila. Okay, Angie, this is a really, really good question because we all have financial goals or think we can be doing more with our budget and reaching our accomplishments, right? So whether that's saving your emergency fund, paying off debt, saving for that house, maxing out retirement accounts, there's always room to do more. And then there are things we just enjoy in life. So it really seems like you have this hobby or passion for knitting. And it seems like you've made some really great strides since getting your ish together. And you even said you were only spending on things you needed for, it looks like, almost most of this year. And for that reason, I want to say great job. Let's acknowledge and give you a clap. Clap it up, right? But now you're feeling like, okay, I want to have a reasonable budget and spend on the things I enjoy. Now, I actually don't think that's a bad idea. I think that's a great idea. I think if we restrict ourselves too much, we tend to then bounce back and go the total opposite direction. It's almost like that diet analogy. If you are someone who loves pizza, chocolate, candy, enchiladas, (laughs) I love enchiladas, by the way, then For you to say all of a sudden cold turkey, I'm not doing it anymore because you have this fitness goal. And if it is paining you, right, every time you pass chocolate or the Mexican spot that you can't have that. Now, one, part of that is a good pain, right? Sometimes it feels good to deny ourselves because the outcome of denying ourselves feels so good. You feel so accomplished. But sometimes it can be torture. You feel like you're not enjoying life. You're doing all this sacrifice. And what do you get in return? Now, we all know that Whether it's not eating because you're getting healthy or you're not spending on things that don't matter because you are getting to your goals, it does matter. You do get something in return. But I want you to understand your motivation behind it. And I actually want it to be something where it's sustainable. The key to this whole journey is that it needs to be sustainable. If you push too hard in one direction, you might end up giving up or swinging back the total opposite way because you say, you know what, I deserve this and I'm going to spend 
X amount of dollars, thousands of dollars on this because I've been denying myself the little things in life. So for you to spend $250 on a fancy set of knitting needles, I think there's no problem with that. Now, of course, I don't know your budget. I realize it seems like you still have some more savings and things you need to do first. But I think from all the work that you've done, this realization that you've switched and now you are really being smart, that is so wonderful. And I believe in actually rewarding yourself. Now, not rewarding yourself to the point where you're taking steps back, but just giving yourself positive reinforcement. Now, if you would have wrote in and said, I want knitting needles, I want to take a vacation, I want a car, like you had a long list of all the things you wanted, I'd say, okay, you should choose one and you should choose one that's not going to set you back. But this is something that it seems like you really, really would love. And so I think for anyone struggling with this kind of question, do you go after your goals hardcore or do you maybe spend money here and there? One is you should definitely go after your goals, but you should be reasonable because you want to create a habit of saving and investing that's sustainable. But also you want to make sure you're enjoying it. And it's not that you can't have it all, but you can't have it all at once. And one quote that I like and I'm starting to say more and more to myself is don't give up what you want right now for what you want the most. So there are going to be some things where you see it and you just want it. But then when it compares to your goals, your long term goals, you're going to say, you know what, it's not worth sacrificing those long term goals. But then there'll be some things for you that will matter for your happiness that will give you boundless return day to day, right? So whether that's a handbag, whether that's some shoes, whether that is a knitting needle, where you know you're gonna value this item, when you see it, it's gonna spark joy, then I do believe that you can then save up and get it. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can find a way to live a balanced life and still save and enjoy yourself. So I hope that helps. I think you should get your knitting needles. Again, I don't know your exact budget, But just don't lose sight of then your goals and just make sure you're prepared for that purchase and you're able to still then move forward and don't feel bad about it. Enjoy your knitting needles. Next question is from Veronica, and this is actually a voicemail question. Hi, Jamila. This is Veronica. I'm calling you from the state of Maryland today, and I was hoping to hear you or a speaker on your podcast talk about how to reach financial independence when you have daycare expenses. I'm paying about $1,200 a month, and I would really rather not pay $1,200 a month for daycare. It's a decent facility. It could be cheaper and it could be more expensive. However, it's still $1,200. It's close to my mortgage, so it's almost like my husband and I are paying a mortgage each. So If you could speak on that, we don't have but one child and that's costing us $1,200 a month for daycare. So if you have someone to speak on that subject, that would be great. Thanks. Okay, Veronica, this is actually a great question because I know a lot of us parents have this huge expense and unfortunately it is what it is. So this time in our lives when our kids are small, because I have kids, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a five-month-old. This time in our lives when they're this little and you do need help to take care of them if you are a working parent outside of the home or even if you work at home. So just quit my job. I'm working from home, but I still have my aunt here who helps in the daytime with the kids, with the younger kids, because my oldest is in school. And there's no way for me, at least, that I'd be able to get any work done if I also had to watch my two-year-old and five-month-old full-time. So whether you're a parent that works outside the home or inside the home, or even if, how about this, you're a stay-at-home mom or dad 
And that is your full-time job, which is a very hard job, by the way, but you do need still then someone to help watch your kids so you can get other things done. This is a problem for a lot of us. And when I say problem, I mean, this is something that is factored into our budget and can be as high as a mortgage, like you said, or a rent. So even for me, I have help. So I have someone who helps me. My aunt stays here and we pay about that amount too every month. Plus we subsidize housing and everything else that comes along with living here. It's just an expense that unfortunately we have to just eat. It's just something we just have to do. So yes, you can look for alternatives, whether that is a school that's maybe cheaper or if you have family members that can help where maybe they're not watching them full time, but they watch here and there and you can save money in that way. Another alternative could be there's another mom maybe in your area that stays at home that wouldn't mind actually watching your child too and getting extra money for that. And so maybe they won't charge you as much as you sending your child to daycare, but they are going to be home and they actually enjoy and can handle an additional child. That can be an option. So just wanted to throw that out there. But I think part of it is just accepting what is. And I'm not saying you can't complain about it, right? Like I'm not saying don't complain about it, but it's one of those things that you can't really escape from it unless possibly you switch work schedules with your husband if that's an option and someone watches the babies in the day while the other one works at night, that could be an option. Or again, if you can find a cheaper alternative. But let's say that's just not the case. That's not the case for my situation. Like my husband and I work in the day and therefore we need childcare and we just have to pay for it. But in general, it is what it is. And you asked about how this relates on the journey to financial independence. And it's interesting because if you're looking at yourself and your expenses while you are in the space where your child is young and needs to go to daycare, so you're looking at your annual expenses and you're realizing $1,200 a month really is a big chunk of our expenses. Now, when you look at FI and what it takes to reach financial independence, so we have this idea in the FI community that if you're trying to figure out your FI number, so the amount of money that you would have to have saved up to be financially independent, meaning you have enough money saved up. And if you never chose to work again, you can draw down on your investments. Then taking into account that 1200 would be a big part of that if you started today. If you looked at all your expenses today and $1,200 was included with that, that means you'd have to save up enough money going forward indefinitely for that amount. But one thing that you can consider is that even though you're spending $1,200 a month now and it may not be something that is in your budget forever, so if your kids are maybe a year or two from going to public school and you don't have to pay for that anymore, your budget will drastically decrease. But one of the things that's common in the FI movement, if both parents decide to stop working, is that you do need health care. And what I've seen people do is that even though this expense of $1,200 goes away once their kids go to school, they still factor in $1,200 in their retirement expenses because they're expecting that they might have to pay $1,200 a month for healthcare. Now, I don't know that healthcare would be that much for you and your family. Maybe your husband or you may still work and you can go under his plan or they can go under your plan. But the idea is that that $1,200 might go away for a bit. But if you're then planning to save for financial independence where you're not having to work or you need to reach your FI number, you might still actually have to add that in if you don't have healthcare insurance because healthcare is actually a big expense for a lot of people who are not supported by a company healthcare plan. So it's just something I want you to consider that you might be able to get away from $1,200 in a couple of years, but you might have to still add it in as your budgeted goal when you are talking about your FI number. This is just a struggle that we all have as parents that are sending our children to daycare or having someone watch them 
I think it's just something that's just a rite of passage. Hopefully this is not going to be the case. You won't need to spend $1,200 for the next 18 years a month, which is temporary. And then in the meantime, look for ways in which you can increase income. So if you can't get the expense of the childcare down, then maybe there are other ways in which you now can increase income. Not that I'm telling you to go work extra hours and stress yourself out, but is there a way in which you can bring in more money into the household? Is there something that you can do? Can you babysit more kids maybe on the weekend? Can you tutor? Can you do something that you enjoy that brings in extra money to help pay for this? So I hope that helps. I know that I can't take away that big expense for you. Sorry about that. But just know you're not alone in that struggle. Okay, next question is from Zach. And by the way, my oldest son's name is Zach. So I just love when I meet people whose name is Zach. So Zach asked, I heard you on the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, and I loved hearing your story. My wife is a teacher, and we hadn't started using the 403B plan or the 457 plan, but we'll definitely start looking into it. We are already doing some IRAs and a 401k. I was wondering why you seem to recommend doing a Roth IRA over a traditional IRA. And you mentioned the benefit of 403B plans and 457 plans and lessening your tax burden. So why don't you extend that to the IRA? So any more clarity around that would be helpful. Okay, Zach. First, for anyone who's just not aware, who wants more clarity on what these accounts are, the 403B plan, the 457 plan, and the 401k plan are usually offered through the city or your employer. It's offered through someone else that you're working for or working through, and that's pre-tax retirement accounts. So that means when you get your check, your take-home pay, the money has already been taken out. So it has not been taxed yet. Your money goes into those accounts without being taxed. And when it's time to take the money out in retirement, it will be taxed. Because just remember this one thing, if you remember nothing else, the government will always get its taxes for the most part. And so if you are able to take money out pre-tax with these accounts, the 401k, the 457 or 403b plan and the IRA. So the traditional IRA is actually also a pre-tax account. Then just know in retirement time when it's time to withdraw that money, Because you did not pay taxes on it when it went in, you will pay taxes on it coming out. And then the Roth IRA, that essentially is after-tax retirement funds. And so you take money that has already been taxed and you then would contribute to a Roth IRA. So when you go to withdraw that money in retirement, then you don't have to pay taxes on it because you already paid taxes on it before you put it in. I hope I explained that a little bit for you. So the reason why I wanted to go through the explanation of both is because I believe in diversification. And so for me, because my husband and I were already maxing out his 457 plan and his 403B plan. So those are my husband's two pre-tax retirement accounts that he had access to because he's a New York City school teacher. And I was maxing out my 401k plan. That's my pre-tax retirement account. I wanted to have diversification. So the Roth IRA is the after-tax money, and it's something where we were funding with after-tax funds. Why it matters to me that we have a diversification is now when it's time for us to retire or withdraw on this money in early retirement, whatever we choose, I don't want all of my funds to have to be taxed by the government. I want ways in which some of it can be taxed, some of it won't be taxed, and diversification is key. You just want options. Now, the reason why I like the whole pre-tax retirement account, so I will max those out first, Typically in my situation was at the time when we were doing that, our income level was higher. 
And so our goal at the moment was to limit and lessen our tax liability as much as possible. So typically, if you are in a current situation where you are making good money or a lot of money, you want to shield that from the government in a legal way. You're not doing anything illegal, but you want to lower your tax liability. And you do that by contributing more to your pre-tax retirement accounts. So for example, let's say you make $100,000. Just get throwing this out. You make $100,000. The government is going to tax you higher at $100,000 versus if you were to max out your 401k, you would then max out your 401k at $18,500, right? $100,000 is your gross income. You're maxing out your 401k at $18,500. So if you don't max out your 401k, the government is going to tax you on $100,000. If you max out your 401k, the government is going to tax you on $81,500. And that's because you shielded that money away in your max out 401k so your government could not tax that. They're not taxing that. They're only taxing you on the lower amount of 81000 or 81500 So this is a reason why a lot of people who are in the more higher tax bracket will focus more on lowering their tax liability because this is what the rich do, right? This is what the wealthy do. It's, it's called being tax efficient. You're wanting to shield money away from taxes. And then when you expect that your income might be lower in retirement, So for example, we were in our high earning years in our late 20s and our 30s. So for us, we expect that we'll actually make less in retirement. And we don't know the tax rate 30 years from now, but we can assume if it's all things being equal, if you think you're going to make less money in the future, then it makes more sense to then take the risk of being taxed more in the future. So for us, it was important to max those accounts out. Now, the reason why we didn't additionally use an IRA in addition to the other pre-tax retirement accounts is because if you are under a workplace 401k or plan, you do have some limits on how you can then deduct a traditional IRA. So you can't contribute 18,500, which is the maximum in your 401k, and then contribute 5,500 in a traditional IRA and have that complete 5,500 in the traditional IRA also tax deductible. You can still contribute to your traditional IRA, but it won't all be tax deductible. Depending on your income limits, you cannot shield all that income from taxes. And so there's just some income limits there that you have to be aware of. If you do make under a certain amount, you can still max out a 401k and max out a traditional IRA and then claim all of that to then be now shielded from taxes. But again, it all depends on what your gross income is, it depends on your situation. So in our situation, it made sense to focus on Roth IRAs, which helped diversify our portfolio. Okay, hope that wasn't too confusing for you guys. Thanks, Zach, for that question. Okay, this next question is one that I got actually on Instagram. So thanks for sending this question over Instagram DM. It's from Joe. Joe says, I heard you on Bigger Pockets and loved it. I was interested in your discussion on the 457 plan. I'm a high school teacher with 23 years in, but would love to make a career change. In the next couple of years, my 403B is maxed out every year, but I've used my 457 plan only intermittently. Does it seem better to stockpile cash, pay off our mortgage, or push more money into the 457, knowing that our income will reduce significantly over the next couple of years? All right, so... Another great question, and it depends on what you're trying to do. So it looks like you're going to make a career change. You're going to have a reduced income, which kind of seems similar to my situation where 
my husband and I together were making really good money living here in the city, but I just quit my nice job to pursue Journey to Launch full-time. So our income has drastically been decreased. I feel you on that, but I guess my advice to you then would kind of just to share with you what we did because that's how we got comfortable with making this leap, with me being able to pursue this career change. So we did stockpile cash and that was just because I needed a runway in which we were not going to be not able to meet our mortgage obligation and expenses while we took an income hit. So it was really important for us to have cash that was accessible and I didn't want it tied up into retirement accounts that I could not touch or it would be harder to get to. So I wanted it to be just like that, really comfortable safety nest egg, well, in my savings account. That way, if something did happen, we needed to pull money from that account, and we do. So right now, our expenses are not covered just by my husband's income, and Journey to Launch is not making nearly or close to what I made at my job. So we actually do have to pull out money from this savings account, which I call the FU fund, to help cover that. And so in your situation, I say that if you're trying to make a big career change and you know that you're going to need some money to cover maybe some expenses, then you should stockpile some cash. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't focus on some other goals. So I see that you said paying off your mortgage was a goal. Now for us, paying off our mortgage is still a major goal, but considering our money, right? So if we had all the money in the world, we do everything. We'll stockpile cash, we'll pay off our mortgage. We'd put more money in a 457 plan too, but money is limited right now. And so instead of paying off our mortgage aggressively, we did change from a 30-year to a 15-year. It forces us to pay that higher payment. And then now we can be guaranteed that at least by the time we're 50 years old, this mortgage will be paid off. But for you, if you are changing careers and things might be a little bit more shaky, tying or putting all your money into your home can be just a little risky just because if something big comes up, it's going to be harder to get that money out of your home, right? You either have to do a home equity line or you have to sell it. So the money or the equity in your home is not as easy to get to. And so when it comes to possibly making big career changes and needing cash on hand, it might make more sense to invest that money instead into accounts that you can actually access. The other thing you mentioned was putting more money into a 457 plan. So the thing about the 457 plan is that if you terminate employment with your 457 plan provider or so, for example, my husband has a 457 plan. If he were to leave his job as a city worker, he could actually access that money in the 457 plan without paying the 10 percent penalty. Now, he'll still have to pay the taxes on it because it's a pre-tax retirement account. But at least he could actually access it if he changed or removed himself from being a city worker. So the 457 plan is actually also a great vehicle for people who are going to be switching jobs maybe in a few years and they want to invest in accounts that are tax advantaged because it's more accessible than a 401k plan because you can take that out without paying the penalty if you are not going into a same kind of field or working for the same employer. So you really do need to think about each option. I just shared with you kind of what I did and hopefully you can make some more informed decisions from there. Okay, last question, which is from Lean. Lean said, can you talk a little bit about why people should consider possibly going after a legal settlement or payout? So possibly going after and suing someone or a company for wrongdoing versus getting a free trip. I asked her to clarify that. 
And she said, sometimes people will complain to a corporation instead of suing one. And the idea of suing a corporation can get you more money. And when she clarified, she said things like maybe you had bed bugs in a hotel. And instead of suing the hotel, you just complained and then you got a free room. But if you would have sued the hotel, you'd get more money. The other example she gave was mold in a house. So if maybe you bought a house, it has mold in it. Maybe you fix it instead of suing the person. But if you sued the person, you get more money. Now, this question, I was just like, hmm, it's interesting because I don't just believe in suing for the sake of suing. But if you are impacted by something, whether that's a slip and fall in front of someone's property or on city property or you had bed bugs and not only did the bug bugs make it disgusting and uncomfortable, but then it limited your availability or ability to work somehow. Whatever the reason is or the inconvenience is for these situations, if it warrants where you have a loss of income or stress and damages from something, then yeah, it could be possible that you should look into really going after maybe a company or someone who's not willing to meet you or do the right thing. But I would caution against anyone suing just for the sake of it. And I know that's not what you're recommending, Lean. But I just want to make sure that I'm being clear that, no, I don't think you should, for any reason, just because you want more money, sue. Because I think that's what ties up and messes up the legal system. And then when people really do need money, when they really do need to sue because something has happened, it makes it bad for them because the system is just inundated with these petty lawsuits for people who just are out for money. But if you do have a legitimate claim And it's something where, you know what, this has impacted your ability to work or it has impacted something where you would need to claim for it, then yes, I think you should consider possibly suing. But also, I think one of the considerations is people look at the time and money it takes for them to go after someone. So when you weigh the cost that it might take to get a lawyer and to go to court and to file documents, it might also seem overwhelming and not worth it. And so it's really just an individual decision other than just being an honest person and not wanting to hold people up for the most part, if they're going to do the right thing by me and alleviate a situation, I don't necessarily believe in just thinking the worst and suing. So for me, a lot of that would have to be really something where it's just like, this has really impacted my family and my ability to make money where I'd go after them hardcore or the person themselves was not a good person. So again, everyone's going to be different, but if it's something that did impact you where you do need to get paid for, and you feel good about it because it's the right thing to do, then you should go after it. I do think a lot of us also do settle and keep quiet about things we maybe shouldn't. And so therefore, this is in no way saying you should quiet your voice and not stand up for yourself. But just be careful about the way in which you do it. And you know that it's in a reputable manner and you have integrity about the situation. All right, that's the end of the Q&As for this week's episode. I just want to thank everyone for sending in questions, whether that was the voicemail or hitting me up on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And then of course, sending emails in that always helps. So continue to send your questions in. Again, I'm hoping to do these more often, maybe at least once every six or so episodes, maybe adding it in as a bonus episode. If you want to send me a question and you want to answer it on the podcast, you can send it to askjamila at journeytolaunch.com. Again, that's askjamila at journeytolaunch.com. Now, I wanted to quickly talk about something here that I hope will help you because it actually happened to me recently and I wanted to be transparent about it because a lot of times we look at our situation and think we should be further ahead. Situation meaning our finances, maybe our career or whatever that may be, maybe our personal life, right? So you might be 
someone who says, oh, I should have been married by now or have kids by now, or maybe I should have been making a million dollars by now, whatever that is. Sometimes I think we can be really hard on ourselves, especially when we compare ourselves to other people, like why we are not further ahead in our situation. And it actually happened to me really recently. I was talking to someone and they asked me how old I was. And this person did not mean anything by it. This was actually like a really great conversation. And they just happened to ask how old I was. And I was like, oh, I'm 35. And I was just like, I feel so old. And of course, the person was like, you are not old. And I know some people who are older than me are rolling their eyes. (laughs) Just like I would roll my eyes at a 24-year-old who says that they're old, right? But everyone's in their own world, right? Or in their own journey. And you have the right to feel how you feel. But this person is younger than me and is doing the damn thing in terms of their business, their entrepreneurship business. They know what they're doing. They feel confident about it. And when I said that I was 35 and realized that they were younger, this thought quickly ran through my head. Wow, I really feel like I should be more ahead, like I'm older and here I am asking for advice or not knowing what to do in my next step, sometimes with Journey to Launch. I had that thought and then I thought about more things. Like this person, they're doing amazing things. Their life, their journey is totally different than mine. Just like how you may be looking at someone like myself or another person who maybe is able to save more or has a house already or is further ahead in their career, you don't know the things that they've done to build themselves up to that point. Now, in my example, I am married. I have three kids. I have my quote-unquote forever home that I do plan on staying in for a while. And so I did spend a lot of my 20s and some of my early 30s building myself up to have the things that I have now. And me finding Journey to Launch was a little bit later. So me finding my passion And what I really do believe is something I want to do full time, hence the reason why I quit my job, is something I found just a little bit later. Not to say that I'm old and done with, it's more of some people, and I meet so many of you who I'm always just so impressed by, who are younger, who are in their 20s, early 30s, who are already starting on their entrepreneurship journey. So they already kind of have more figured out. And that's okay. And maybe because you started that early, you didn't focus on family life or you don't have your home yet. I want to just remind you guys that we are all traveling on a journey. We all have things in which we think we want to be further ahead in, but everyone's situation is different and you don't know that person's situation or what it took for them to get there. So you might look at me and say, wow, you were able to grow this great income in your corporate job, but I was in my corporate job for almost 13 years. Started at 22, left at 35 years old or having kids. I have three kids already. And so a lot of my time was kind of in the routine of building myself up and becoming financially stable. And now I'm able to take this leap in entrepreneurship versus maybe if someone first takes the leap in entrepreneurship and doesn't have kids yet, that journey looks different. So all that to say is that embrace your journey. Even if you have some random thoughts, you feel bad about where you currently are. I want you to snap yourself out of it because it serves no one to compare and think about what could have been. And that's not going to do anything for you. All you can do is start from where you are today and move forward. And at the end of the day, everyone's journey is going to be uniquely different. So I hope that helps you if you are ever having some doubts or feeling bad about your starting point or starting too early or starting too late or not knowing what's going on. Listen, no one has it all figured out. We're all trying to figure it out. And so I'm just happy that I'm figuring out this with you. Again, if you want the episode show notes, go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 67. Don't forget, let me know what you thought of this episode on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm 
Journey to Launch on all platforms. You can also join the private Facebook group at journeytolaunch.com slash community, or just go to Facebook and type in Journey to Launch. You'll see my page, which you can like, and then you can join the group. Also, you can hashtag Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Tag me. Let me know you're listening to this. Until next time, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.